Welcome back to the Poor Pearls Almanac. As always, my name is Andy and I'm your host. And today we're joined by Buzz Fervor of A Perfect Circle Farm. You might know Buzz from his involvement with the rediscovery of parts of John Hershey's farm in Downington, Pennsylvania. And not only is he a wonderful resource of historical knowledge on the tree crop movement here in the United States, he's also a phenomenal plant breeder with some really interesting stuff going on. We chat about his farm in Vermont, the trees he's working with, what makes his nursery bed so unique, and what you should be thinking about if you're interested in starting a tree nursery. I know if you've enjoyed our past content, you're going to love this conversation, so I'm going to wrap this up and get right to the interview. Let us know what you guys think. Buzz, thanks for coming on. Tell us a little bit about uh, your farm and some of the stuff you've got going on. Well, hi, Andy. Thanks for having me. The name of my farm is Perfect Circle Farm. Find me on the internet, perfectcircle.farm. I have been on this piece of land for 10 years. It'll be 10 years in April and have been on a very deep dive in edible, edible nut trees and shrubs, along with fruits as well. But um, my natural bent is towards is towards nut trees. I'm in Vermont. I'm in central Vermont. So 4B just changed last week to 5A, which is ridiculous to where I am and totally inaccurate. But that's okay. So it's cold, pretty cold here. And so a lot of the a lot of the plants that I am growing here, you know, I was told by many people that I'd have a lot of difficulty. They'd never grow. You're crazy to do that, which kind of just fuels my fire. And so I've grown an awful lot of plants from seed and grafted plants here and have been collecting, you know, the germplasm for the germplasm that I've been working on. I've been collecting for at least five or six or seven years before I got here. And so I came from my last small homestead to this much larger farm with quite a few of my uh, uh, mother trees and starts. Yeah. We've grown from, well, I was doing it part-time and working full-time and doing this part-time until two years ago, and it's been full-time now for two years. So it's been an interesting transition. I'm sure it is. One thing I do love about your farm is if you go on the website, the amount of cultivars that you have, at least listed on the website, is just unreal. The depth of knowledge that goes into having that much is really impressive, whether it's persimmons or chestnuts or I think you still have hickans listed, but I, I believe when we spoke last, you said you weren't really growing anymore. Oh uh, no, I'm still growing hickans. Oh, you are. Oh yeah, I'm excited by hickans because the hickans that I've observed. Well, let's back up a little bit. Let me just answer that. I'm kind of answering on the sequence. Like, first off, cultivars, varieties, and plants. You know, it's good to get that stuff straight, right? So, a cultivar is a plant that's been produced intentionally through crossing. Or, or other hybridization by people and given a name. That is a cultivar. A variety is something that comes true to seed or you know, it's an aberration from normal, but you can plant it like uh, thornless honey locust. It's, um, it's variety enormous. And so most 90% or more of those seedlings will come without thorns. And so that's variety. And, and you know, it drives certain people, not me, I'm pretty flexible, but it drives certain people crazy that variety and cultivar are used interchangeably. So for me, when, I'm, when you're growing a seedling, it is usually neither a variety or a cultivar, never a cultivar, um, until you decide to give it a name. And then it's like, this is one that should be cultivated. And you name it and, and you know, put it out in, for people to try and grow, graft and so forth, so forth. But that is always, you know, vegetatively produced, a clone cultivar. Um, so when I, what I do is I, I have been tracking down 
Um, I call them the uh, giants on, who, on whose shoulders I stand. I've been tracking down their plantings, John Hershey and Fayette Etter and Parker Coble and um, Little Page and on and on and visiting their sites, which are 100 years old, some of them, and have cultivars that they grafted in the 20s and stuff like that growing and collecting seed from them because they're growing usually amongst other fantastic plants. When you're talking about seedling trees that I have, which, and I'm ridiculously, it's almost a mental condition about provenance. Like if you see my seedling nurseries, literally there are thousands of stakes with a tag, who the mother tree was, you know, where it came from and, you know, the date we planted it. And it gets to be a lot to manage, you know, but that way I know if something's really successful or tremendous, looks tremendous as a baby, I know, oh my and really hardy, of course, for me, really hardy, then I, I can go back and say, wow, that is one I have to propagate. And so that's that's kind of how I kind of organize this farm is most of the seedling trees, which I do have hundreds, if not thousands of different selections, are organized by their mother tree and from what orchard they came from. So I can pass that on to the people that I'm passing it on to, because we can see historically when we go to these growers who've been doing the same thing I'm doing, that the seedlings of these great cultivars that were grown and collected in orchards where there were other fabulous trees, the chances of those plants being superior are, are much higher. And that's been proven in, over the past hundred years. I, at the, the past hundred years of what I've observed, especially with John Hershey, makes it real clear to me that, yeah, the best way to get improved uh, cultivars, to, to in, improved seedlings that then can be turned into cultivars like wow this is a great one and john gordon who you may or may not know about he was another one he was constantly planting thousands if not tens of thousands of seed in order to get the improved selections and a lot of those lessons come from oh the dude in california um moved from mass to california famous plant growers got an encyclopedia burbank luther burbank yeah he would plant a hundred thousand seed select two and then breed those together and keep going, you know? He was out of his mind as far as seed selection. So that's what I'm trying to do here for cold hardy fruit and nut trees, is put together a lot of seedlings that I can observe and make those choices about, okay, these are the ones I want to plant out and watch for the next 10, 15, 20 years. Now, he cans, back to that, he cans, in my observations, are typically right, right about the same time as shagbark. And shagbark is typically ripe about the same time as shellbark. So shagbark and even shellbark, shellbark in zone five, shagbark in zone four. Here, here where I live, just two miles from me, there are some big old shagbarks that someone planted down in town that produce every year. So I have hopes that I can get hecans to fruit. Maybe not the giant ones, you know, the McAllisters and the James and the ones that are, you know, as big as a lemon. But um, a lot of them are smaller and they're shagbark size. So I think a lot of them will fruit and of course hecans are my favorite hickory nut to eat the one i love the most i mean it's hard to to turn it down i mean it's got the best of both worlds hence why people are doing exactly. it exactly uh <laughs> and they're all they're always thin shelled easy cracking come out and have some quarters easily you don't need a massive cracker um it's not like opening shell barks where the, the they can be brittle and they still come out well but you really have to whale on them so it's just an easy nut to crack and eat, and it's delicious. It's my kids. They're, it's their favorite nut by far. Yeah. So the selection you have, I know on your website you've got, I think, like eight different hecans. Is that what you're still growing out where you are right now, or um, have you kind of whittled it down since you moved? 
No, I'm still growing them all. I'm still growing. It's probably more than eight. I mean, it's probably, I mean, I don't, you know, McAllister, James, Bixby, uh, Coble Sweetie, Country Club, Clarksville, T92. I'm sure there's five or six more. I don't have them all every year. It's very hard to get he can seed. You have to go and collect them yourselves. It's impossible to yeah. trade, almost impossible to buy or trade. Yeah, there's a bunch more yeah. he can Edder, Edder Hybrid, Burlington, Wright, aka Hershey, Marquart. The list is pretty long of all the he cans. That's not counting the bit cans, which I love them to too, usually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now, are there any in particular that you're you're uniquely excited to see how they play out, or are you just kind of still in the let's see what what happens? So I I always I defer to John Gordon. Now John Gordon was a grower in Buffalo, New York, and you can find his website on the Wayback Machine. It's Nut Trees North. John Gordon wrote, a, and John was a very active member in the Ontario Society of Ontario Nut Growers which goes by song and Grimo and Doug Campbell and several other people were, were very active in that society of Ontario nut growers. And they wrote a book, actually John Gordon wrote the book and it's called, um, well, I'm going to forget what it's called. I'm going to go pull it out. Do you mind if I go grab, go grab it? Yeah. Is it, is it the one that's, I think it's called like nut propagation or something like really. Yeah. So <laughs> it's called nut growing Ontario style. Ah. It is a little paperback like this. And it is it is ninety seven percent reference. He writes everything in bullet points. There's no there's no story. It's like bullet point, bullet point, bullet point, bullet point. Bullet point. And not all that, business, huh? All business. Well, it's it's organized. It's organized by um, you know the chapters are overview, basics, and then it's black walnut, chestnut, filbert, air layering and stooling, hard nut, Persian walnut, hickory, pecan, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So it's by every genus. And what it is, it tells you how to propagate, what the needs are, how to how do you handle the seed, what the highlights are, you know, grafting, how to plan out. He's got charts from every single one of the genus on um, he organizes the plantings by um, a butt area. So that if you take the size of the tree, figure out the butt area, it's X much butt area of stump per acre. And then he tells you how to cut, cut them out over time, right? Because a lot of these trees need to be pushed up. So it's a really interesting yeah. book, and it's no nonsense. So from a propagator's perspective, I've learned more from this little book, which is, of course, out of print. You can get it online, or you could get it online. I've been trying lately. There are no copies available. And they used to be cheap, and nothing. none of the good books are cheap anymore. But if anybody's interested in growing nut trees, I learned more about the fundamentals of growing nut trees from this book than any other book I have have read. And so John Gordon talks about seedling selection, and he talks about what to look for in promising seedlings. And big in Buffalo, which is five five B, I think, he's still growing in a pretty cold area. So he talks about in the second or third year of looking at seedlings, you're looking what you're looking for is large dark green leaves, which show you that the plant is very very vigorous and has a lot of chlorophyll, so it can push really hard as far as solar collectors are huge, relative vigor, like it grows much more quickly than most of its surrounding neighbors of that same seed lot. And then bud placement. He talks about where, how the bud should look uh, in order to um, foretell the traits of rapid growth, vigor, and good production in the future. And so that's, that's I use his kind of model for selecting from the, all these different plants 
the clear standouts that are much more vigorous, much darker green and have better bud placement. So what John Gordon did, which was fascinating, is he would find one of these things after its second or third year, these seedlings that he thought were vigorous, and he would take them and graft them onto another tree, a great big one. And he called that tree's parking lot, and he would put you know, 20, 30, whatever trees that he was evaluating, seedlings that were only three years old on these much larger trees, which would push them into fruiting in a year or two. And then he could get a much quicker evaluation. And that's how he was able to introduce so many heart nuts and hickories and pecans from his work because he was pushing them using this parking lot method, which has been used by others as well. So what I'm looking for here, if I'm planting blocks of eight different hecans, I'm looking for the hardiest, most vigorous, best looking outliers. And those are the ones that I plan out here for observation and for, to watch them grow. So that's how that works. Nice. Now, and amongst all the various hecans, um, I would not say there's any one that stands out as superior. It's like, oh, that's the one I'm going to plant the most of. And none of the hickories have much of that. Uh, the only, I will take that back. So Granger throws some amazing seedlings, huge, dark, dark green leaves with lots of vigor. And Granger is a, um, a shag bark, most likely, pure shag bark. Found by John or John Hershey in Granger County, Tennessee, not far from Bon. Oh, nice. Not far from Bonnaroo. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah, that that's that's awesome. It's really interesting stuff. Now I know you do you do some really intense volume for tree crops. I know when we'd spoken last, you talked about having like fifty thousand seedlings going. Yeah. And you you mentioned that you've got some really unique styles for how you're managing your nursery beds. I don't know if you could talk about that a little bit. Sure. So we're gonna we'll use the example of persimmons, um, which is what your fifty thousand ceiling references of. So persimmons is my favorite fruit. Always has been my favorite fruit. So I grew up in you know, central Pennsylvania, or, or excuse me, southeast Pennsylvania, center part of the East Coast, and there were persimmons around. Um, not a lot of cultivars, but a lot of pretty cool plants that we would eat. So I have always loved persimmons, and when I found out there were cultivars of them, and then got around to tasting some of the cultivar cultivars. You know, I kind of had another meltdown about, oh, my God, and then tried, planted them by the hundreds here in grafts in zone 4B where I am, and they all died. I couldn't get any of them to survive. Some would survive one winter. Sometimes they'd go two, then they would die down to, the, to below the graft. And so that was kind of a blow. And uh, simultaneously with that, I started planting seedlings, also organized by provenance and mother tree, and um, with the idea that probably embedded in the in the historic genome of the genetics of the tree uh, is hardiness that is above normal or, you know, much more hardier. So cold tolerance there. And I've heard to some other growers. And so I started planting them by the thousands and they would die by the thousands, especially they would burn back to the, they would, they would winter die. The cold would kill them to the ground a lot of times, but it wouldn't kill them all the way. And some of them, you know, would die really bad the first year. And then the second year, they would die less bad. And the third year, they would die less bad and so forth. But as those years go by, the number of them that would die, die back the least, were the ones that I would be attracted to and then would collect and line out. And out of 35,000 seedlings from all cultivar, Virginiana, very few hybrids. I'm trying a few hybrids now. I have one just one plant that has shown zero winter dieback in four winters. That's 
that's my baby. Uh, you know, I, I have I have maybe thirty that are just behind that that don't show much dieback. Um, and I've also identified a, a couple different cultivars that seem to have show much less dieback than normal. And other than those two, I probably trialed forty or fifty cultivars in many hundred, you know, half pound to a pound, three three to six hundred plants each. And there's random survivors, but in two cultivars, one of them being Hess, which there's only one person that has Hess that I know of, and Hess is a John Gordon selection, and that's Donald Compton. So he, he sent me Hess seedlings one year. And then there's another one at Hershey, which is kind of odd, kind of watery and flat and bluish and not very normal looking for a Virginiana that I believe is a cultivar called Berman. And that one seems to have, in general, way more hardiness. But the fruit is not great. It's only okay. It's real watery and kind of, it's, it's only, it's only, eh. Yeah. Hess is much better. Hess seems to be like a regular, like a early golden type. So that's, that's those two I'm excited about. And then my few others. Now, having said that, I have yet to see any flowers on any of the seedlings I have yet grown. I had high hopes for on my, my four and five-year-olds. Um, this, this past year, but on May 18th, we had 25 degrees all night long, over 12 hours. And so they were all leafed out. So they all got burned hard. And in their recovery, they neglected to flower or I was unable to find any flowers in, in any of the ones I had in any of my hundred or so that I'm keeping good tabs on. But I still think well, I've given it a little more, a few more years, I'll have some selections that are fully hardy in my zone 4B, which is 25 below, 25F below, almost most years. Does that answer that question? Yeah, but now I'm, I'm interested in what the nursery beds actually mm. look like. What it, what makes them unique? So the nursery beds here, the seed beds that I, I grow are modeled after, it's kind of a mix between state nursery style I don't know if you've ever seen the pictures of the state nursery with the long, long beds. <laughs> yep. And another grower who was really one of my earliest mentors, this guy, Gerhard Hansen. And Gerhard Hansen was in his 70s, I think, when he or 60s, probably when he started teaching me in 70s when he taught me a lot, taught, 70s when he taught me a lot. But he was an organic grower of trees in Nottingham, Pennsylvania. He was one of the Hansen brothers who came from Germany. And the Hansen brothers had a big nursery in um King of Prussia, I believe, or Valley Forge, somewhere up there in Pennsylvania. And Gerhard was a black sheep, but he wasn't able to stay in business with them. So he went on his own. And he was a very, very, very gifted grower and taught me a lot about greenhouse growing with cuttings and greenhouse culture and then taught me grafting of ornamental plants. Uh, he was a big, big grafter of dwarf and weeping evergreens, along with many other things. He grew regular nursery, lined out nursery tree stuff stock um, for bread and butter money. And then um, for the, you know, for um, specialty, he would graft all these crazy plants. And so he taught me his bed style or I observed his bed style. And he told me why and how he did it. And so the beds I, the beds I make, I till them very, very deep. I usually till them either very hard with a chisel plow before I start on them, or I'll till them with an excavator, 24 inches deep. Oh, wow. And I turn the topsoil, I turn the topsoil under with the subsoil. So I make the bed four feet, roughly four feet, four to four and a half feet wide. I till it 24 inches deep. I put in probably 
once it's turned, rub, you know, broken down, I peel the sod off, put that to the side, turn the bed under, um, pick out all the rocks. I put in six to 12 inches of compost that I make here on the farm. And then I till that all in. And the bed ends up being about four feet wide with a two foot, two to two and a half foot mulched aisleway on either side. I, I plant the rows, a seed, perpendicular to the long axis, so across the bed. And I put them about, the rows about six inches apart, and the seeds about somewhere between one to two inches apart. They run, they'll run the whole way solid, except I'll make a, usually, sometimes I'll make a slightly larger space as I switch from a mother tree to mother tree. And so they grow up very thick. And in a good year, when all the seeds are viable, they're weedy the first year. And we usually end up, we weed once, once a year is all we weed. Oh, and I, the other thing I do is I prepare the bed a year in advance and I till it multiple times in order to get ahead of the weeds. That brings the weeds out, the weeds germinate, I till again, the weeds germinate again, I'll till again, cover crop in the fall, and in spring I'll turn that under early and then plant the beds out. And so the weed pressure is low the first year anyway, because I've preconditioned that soil to get rid of as much of the weeds as I can. But we'll still usually, there'll be certain weeds that will show up. And so we usually weed those beds once the first year in July when the seeds and seedlings are small. And so you look across my beds, they're you know four feet wide and solid. The idea, if I get great germination, is the second year they all leaf out and it ends up being closed canopy, 18 inches tall. And so low weed pressure just from the amount of shade. Works like a charm with walnuts, pecans, and, and chestnuts, plants with great germination and great vigor. Hickories are so darn slow, it's hard to get them to do that in the first two years. But even in the second year, we usually just, we might spot weed for real bad perennial weeds throughout the year, but we'll do one weeding in late July to clear the deck again. Um, I am looking for, to me, in my experience, dandelion, you know, regular dan wild dandelion makes the perfect cover crop for a nursery bed. It doesn't compete at all with any of the trees that I've seen. It doesn't get tall enough or thick enough, even when they get big. And they only last two years, so they cycle out and they're loosening the soil up as you go. So I'm really encouraged if I see a solid stand of yellow flowers um, in the nursery beds, I'm happy because I know I, I won't have much weeding to do that year because I don't really, we don't weed them out. We just weed out the stuff that gets tall and rangy, uh, sorrel. Um, various sorrels and goldenrod and stuff like that. Um, so we try to keep, we don't use any herbicide, pesticide, fungicide, no sides. We're not organic, but we follow the practices as best we can, which is like 99.9% .9 of the time. And so all my beds are, you know, to the casual observer appear quite weedy, but I'm, I'm always looking at them like, are the trees being affected or slowed down by the weeds? And when I can answer no in my head, I don't, I'm not worried about the weeds. When I start to worry, that the plants are getting overtopped or the weeds are, are you know, coming up and falling down on top of the trees. That's when we get in there and weed. But I try to make it happen so that we weed as little as possible. And the reason I till those beds so deeply is I harvest with an excavator. That's how I harvest the plants. So we get underneath them and lift them two or three rows at a time, pull them out once they're loose, do the pre-call on them and bundle them and then keep going down the, the row like that. And I've set the beds and the paths up so that my excavator fits on the path and can go over the bed. Usually we'll get one bed started or out easy or, you know, for look for an opportunity so I could be in the 
one row over from where I'm actually harvesting. But sometimes I have to harvest the row right on, on the row. So basically just we just run on, on top of the plants and the plants just bend out of the way and they're popped out. For a small operation, it's a super efficient way to grow an awful lot of plants and harvest an awful lot of plants bare root because that bare root window is small. You know, you have to get those things out after, for me, it's after the soil freeze, after the soil falls out and the snow goes away and before the buds swell. So it's a couple of weeks is all you get to dig all those plants. Yeah. So that, and that's, and that is how Gerhard Hansen did his beds. He also, the one thing he did that I can't do is he would do this in the forest and he would thin out the forest, including pulling stumps on three foot diameter oaks, but leave a skip canopy like 60, 50, 60% shade, but 60, 70 feet up to the start of those things, you know, because they were it was a closed canopy forest. And then he had his beds in there. Um, he had even lower weed, even lower weed pressure. And of course, by having beds that are uh, deeply tilled like that, the root systems that you're seeing out of those beds are very similar to a um, air pruning bed. There's not a lot of tap rooting with the exception of hickories. The roots come out easy. They're vigorous and big and they don't they don't get broken and you're not dealing with hard clay or any of that stuff they come out super easy um you do have to irrigate a little more because the soil is very much more open but not a lot you know it's not like having a pot having trees and pots which is a huge amount of work keeping those things watered yeah especially with the weather we've had the last few years i mean this past year we had good rain but man the last two or three summers have been tough dude it's either drought or um, flood here. It's either what's one or the other. This year was the wettest year I've ever yeah. seen in my life. Yeah, same here. We had like 40 inches of rain from June 1st to like September sometime. Like a year's worth of rain in four months, three or four months. It was terrible. And so yeah. I didn't water, I didn't have to water the pots as much, but um, nobody had a lot of sun because it was always cloudy. Yeah, it was, it was a tough year this year. The travails of agriculture. Yeah, right. <laughs> Hey, we're taking a quick break in the episode to remind you that you can get a whole lot more information from poorproles.com. On our website, we have access to our supplemental reader for the podcast, which provides more depth and context, as well as thorough citations for all of the stuff we talk about in the show. You can also sign up for our newsletter, which updates you about limited releases, such as various nursery stock that we sometimes sell through the Poor Proles website, as well as updates about new merch that we have. You can also support the show through that website, poorproles.com, where you have access to our Patreon and our Substack to get early releases for articles and episodes. Now, if you enjoy the show and are just looking for even more audio content, go check out Tomorrow Today, which just wrapped up season one, or tune into the Gastropocene, which is a project of myself and Dr. Aisha Khan to discuss the way our diets have driven the Anthropocene and what it looks like to use our diets for good. Now, back to the show. So you've got, we've talked about the hecans. I know chestnuts are a big one for you. So uh, I, I'm interested a little bit about what you're doing for breeding work because everyone's kind of got their own thing on what they think is the best path forward. Yeah. So I've just barely started to, to do breeding work as far as making handmade crosses. I Maybe I've been doing that for three years here because I haven't had plants that were big enough to be producing until recently. But I do a lot of selection of trees and trialing of various hybrids from all over the place. But a lot of them are from Connecticut, from the work of uh, Arthur Graves, Dick Janes, uh, the other two fellows I can never remember, Jones and Niehau, Niedermacher, something like that. And then Dr. Sandy and Agnostakis. 
who was breeding hard in the early part of the 2000s. And so there's all kinds of beautiful trees there of all kinds of crazy hybridization that's are uncommon. And she, also Connecticut is still quite warm. It's zone 6B there, I think. But as far as uh, you know, soil conditions and generally cold temperatures, it's it's similar to where I am in many ways. But I, I also, one of the things I have on, the, on my farm here is the only farm I could afford, actually. Uh, the soil is not great for chestnuts, especially. It's too heavy, and it's also too alkaline. So here I'm getting a good opportunity to say, okay, well, which which chestnuts will survive tighter soil than they're known than they like, and then sweeter soils than they like. One guy who worked for me for the last two years. I have one patch I'm looking at right now at the window, and he would call he called them my hardy swamp chestnut because it's in a coal pocket and it's, it's not very easy. You know, I'd often raise up where I put a chestnut, like make a berm, so they have a drier crown, but. Yeah, it's a lot of work. So I've just been kind of like lining them out. And so I've had some incredible survival of certain types of hybrids. So that the Chinese are, it seems quite random with them, which ones will survive and where. But you start adding Carnata, uh, which is Japanese chestnut, into some of these crosses. And I get surprisingly better survival. And they tend to have you know, more tree form growth anyway, timber type tree form, apical dominance than a lot of the trees, which I'm big on that look. Um, I want to leave behind a forest here when I'm, when I'm gone, um, rather than a, you know, orchard, apple orchard, Chinese chestnut kind of orchard. So I'm, I'm big on the, the Jap hybrids, Japanese hybrids, the Cronatas. And of course, you know, Sandy's been mixing those up with, you know, Colossal and those Arkansas and, and Graves and all those people before her, they were doing Chinese, Japanese, American crosses all the time. A lot of those crosses because they were look, looking for bright to blight, to blight tolerance and tree form. So I have, I've been planting a lot of those genetics. I think we planted 10,000 chestnut seed in the last two years. Now, one of the things that casual growers should know is when you're selecting for something like hardiness, too much clay in the soil and too much water, too sweet, you're roguing at least half of everything you harvest. So when I harvest a bed of 100, I, I probably throw away 50. And that's not just with chestnuts. That was, that's with most things. Because there's a top half and a bottom half. And with, with lots of times, it's very clear that, you know, these plants are the bottom half. And we just toss them, uh, give them away, or, you know, throw them in the compost pile. And then the top, from the top half, we um, sell the best ones graft to the uh, well the best ones i line out here the top five percent i line out here and then the the next 30 percent we sell and or and or use for rootstock for all my grafting work because it's much i find it'd be much better to grow your own rootstock when you're grafting plants yeah i mean i guess that makes sense if you've got the resources how do you retool it a little bit to uh get some use out of it well you'll find i'm going to just bump in so buying plants for root for rootstock so we're grafting three to five thousand plants a year here a lot of them nut trees and so if you try to buy those in it is so erratic <laughs> good ones bad ones total junk stuff you throw away it's amazing so i have learned the hard way that we it's much better if you produce all your own rootstock and you have plenty of extra so you can actually use the ones that that, that really suit you. Large, larger caliper, big root systems, vigorous plants make a much better graft. 
and 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 fresh fresh from stocks too. Yeah. So are you when you're going through and we going through and winnowing through what you've got for resources? How are you identifying rootstock and are you going through replanting things and saying I'm going to let this get a little bit bigger so I can use it as rootstock? Like kind of what what does that look like? Yeah, that's a great question. So I'll 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 try I'll go through that again a little slower. So let's say we have a bed of a hundred plants. We're going to dig all of those in one shot, usually the second or the third year, depending on the on the genus and the relative vigor of the plant as it grows. Right? Some genus grow much faster than others, so they're all coming out in the second. The slower ones come out in the third. And so when I take those hundred plants out, fifty of them are the bottom half. It's a, this is a rough number, but there's usually you can see the dividing line between the plants that look good to great and the plants that look fair to poor. And so I would usually sort out those fair to poor ones and discard them because the investment in trying to take them forward, it's not worth it because they don't have enough vigor on their own. They've all been given an equal shot in that bed and certain ones just prevail. They just grow better. The root systems form better. The nut place, the nut was stronger. There was more resources in that nut. Um, the radical came out in a better angle. So it got a better start when it rooted out, whatever the reason might be. So we toss the bottom 50. In the top 50, we have plants to sell, plants for rootstock, and plants to line out here for me to further line out. It's like 5 or 10%. That's all I'm going to do. I'm just looking for those top few seedlings that we talked about that have that John Gordon criteria of being the best ones. And those are the ones we put out in nursery rows here. And then that might be 5 or 10%. So I'll take you know 5 or 10 of those 100 plants, keep them to plant out in the ground usually. And the other ones are going to be sold or go to rootstock. Rootstock selection is different kind of than for sale, actually, because with rootstock selection, I want a real strong, really vigorous root system, but it can't be too big. It's got, I have a certain pot size, which is three, it's three and a half by three and a half by nine. So that rootstock has to fit in that pot. So that's how we sort rootstocks. Like what are the best ones that will fit in the pot? The ones that are better than that, they all get sold out to the public. Because I'm trying to get the largest plant I can to fit in that pot, but I can't. I, I don't want to cut them and hack them. Then you're just yeah. you're destroying the root system. It's just no fun to do that. They're not going to bounce back. They're not going to perform as a grafted as a rootstock. And so that's what we do. So that's how we make that cut. That's how I kind of figure out. Like we'll go through an inventory, a bed of a hundred plants. Oh, there's a hundred of this one. Okay, I got fifty. I'm going to throw away ten for me. I need twenty rootstocks. That means I have twenty for sale. That's how we. That's how that works out. It's an interesting model. And I guess, like, so when you're identifying rootstock, I'm assuming you're using that for selections from other beds. What do you mean? So you've you've got your 100 trees, 50 are tossed, 20 are going to sale, 20 are, 10 are for, yep. you know, improved genetics, yep. 20 are for rootstock. Yep. That rootstock isn't getting applied to to what you just harvested for your improved lines, that's going to either cuttings from other trees, exactly. things like that. Those rootstock, yeah. those rootstock plants, and the way it works, so it's also successive. Is well, but those where rootstock plants, at. the rootstock plants, and the one for sale, ones for sale, they go into a cooler. We have a large cooler. We put all the bare root plants that we're going to keep and sell or plant, and they're in. They're held at thirty-five degrees, thirty-four degrees until we're ready to process them. And the rootstock ones, so we'll ship out all the orders. They all go out um, when the weather's conducive and I decide to line out a bed here. We'll line it my the ones I want for me out. And then the rootstocks go as the, this is an interesting thing to understand is we will graft onto them 
that's that same year. We take them from the cellar, put them in the greenhouse where it's I have the heat on at 75 or 80, and then uh, push those plants, push them into leaf. They start budding out and they start leafing. And they are typically still bare root, and they're either going to be in buckets of water or they're in buckets of sawdust, not sawdust, buckets of wood chips, well-rotted wood chips. And once they start to leaf out, that's when we hack the top off, graft them, and then with most nut trees, the, day, so the minute we graft them, or the soon after they're grafting, we pot them up and those plants stay in the greenhouse and they heal and start to leaf out and they'll be in the greenhouse for about a month. Maybe longer if we have time and space, maybe all summer, if we have a summer like this, we'll be barely be able to fit ourselves in there because there's so many grafts that we're trying to push along. But most of that stuff will get used in the current year for the rootstocks we need for this year. The stuff we're going to plan out for ourselves that may there's two ways that can get lined out that can go out in a nursery row where they're planted on two to four foot centers for further observation or they can go back into another bed planted maybe five or six across the bed that same shape bed where they might be for two more years so i can observe them more closely persimmons usually i usually get persimmons for four to about four feet before we put them out in the the wilds of my back 40 to fight it out with the deer and the weeds that <laughs> are back there are they getting hit by deer the persimmons? Uh, yeah, you know, I'm always thinking, oh, I'm going to get a deer fence. I'm going to get a deer fence. I'm not big on, you know, tree tubes work well, but it's a lot of maintenance. Mm. And I'm not a big fan. i got enough plastic in my life. So <laughs> I tend to just plant like an awful lot. And then I plant a lot of prunus and malice for the deer to eat, like catch crops almost. I give them something to do, mm. right? And I also plant a lot of the nursery rows that I'm improving far to the back because I'm, I'm cascading down my field. I plant that out in um, deer plot. I plant the cover crop in the fall as deer plot food. So the deers are there pawing through that, eating the plot, plot whatever's growing in the plot, turnips and radishes and other grasses they like all winter. So they're fooling with that a lot and, you know, destroying my apples and cherries that I planted out for them, bush cherries and apples, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah, I've my persimmons. I've never had them get hit by deer. So I was, I've heard some people say they've had that problem. I just the leaves are so leathery. I have a hard time seeing it. Yeah, it's not the leaves so much for me here. The deer hammer my stuff. Chestnuts and persimmon they hammer and they go for the buds. In the, oh, in really? the winter, yeah, they look they chew the bark and the buds. They pound them. Ugh, that's... Yeah, apple apple is their first choice, man. Apple and, and cherries like deer crack. So that's the first choice. They'll pound all them first. And if they run out of that, then they'll start in on. They'll also do hickory. Yeah. They leave they leave black walnut alone. And chestnuts, not too bad. But yeah, they, uh, yeah. you know, depends on how hungry they are, what they have to chew on, how deep the snow is up here. You're also doing some uh, work with oak trees and bur oaks, which I'm a big fan of. We just did a uh, bur oak competition. Right now, the biggest, we just closed it up. I got to finish going through all the uh, ones that people sent me. The biggest one I've got is the acorns are uh, 1.6 ounces each one. 1.6 ounces. Which is 400. Big boys. 650 grams or something. Yeah. That's, it's that's it, monstrous. It, is that right? Yeah. 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 It's, it's, uh, it's about 40% bigger than the next one. Is that, is that uh, cap and acorn? No, no cap. I, I've got some. It's like they're like 10 feet away from me if you want to yeah, see yeah, them. Yeah, go I mean, get them, man. Yeah. Just, hold on one hang second. On, hang on. <laughs> Here we go. Look at these things. 
Yeah. Yeah, that's a monster, man. Yeah. yeah. They're friggin' it's hard to contextualize like because I need something to put it next to. Like, all right, here's a pen. Oh you know, I, <laughs> like, I yeah. <laughs> I, I collect these too, right? I have sources. And that's the biggest I've ever seen, I think. Yeah, it's the biggest I've seen either, uh, by a pretty good margin. Yeah, there's some great I don't know if you know who Mike Stringfield is. I don't know that DC name. Kansas, no. He has an unbelievable one. And then Dale Hendricks, you probably know Dale. Dale, yeah. Dale's one in his woods. We call it Dale's Giant. It's almost that big. Oh, it's one size, just yeah. one size down. And then um, Hershey has a couple of big ones. And then, um, do you know who Lucky Pittman is? I know the name. Lucky uh, has that's a about collection it. of grafted oaks, which is who's that's who's that's whose collection I'm predominantly grafting over. Is he's been collecting them for thirty years, so he's got a, a great selection from Don Cobb and from Danielson Ethica. He's got this one is Burby Burby English. It monstrous, man. It is just and lots. I mean, just a huge amount of nuts off that tree. And then Hershey's got this really sweet ones, which I think now the sweetest of his might actually be Ashworth, which is a white hybrid. Small. Yeah. Small. But it's sweet. You can eat them like chestnuts. They're they're just you can just eat them. And that was found by Fred Ashworth and grown a lot by Bill McKinley. Is that the one I uh, found on the side of the road? That's the one he found on the side of the road. Yeah. Yeah, I think Ken Ken Asmus has some of those too. Probably, Ken loves those yeah. too. He does. Yeah, uh, <laughs> we we chatted quite a bit about them. Yeah, so uh, you've got a few selections. Anything in particular that you think that you're particularly excited about or interested to see how how it handles your uh, nice cold weather? It's I have probably thirty or forty selections of oaks grafted, two winners, three winners, four winners in. So. Like Dale's Giant, which is the next size down from the one you have there in Pennsylvania. Now here, they don't get that big. Yeah, I'll be real interested to see how big these get growing up here. I mean, eastern or western North Carolina is not, you still have the longer days, but the temperature-wise, it should have no problem with the growing season in terms of like warm t- warm weather. Yeah, it's funny. The um, I don't see any of the oaks, the ones that are typically on, anywhere on the east coast, not hardy here. They all grow. But it's like, how big is the acorn and how long will it take? Like, I get those acorns yeah. from Lucky, this burb, burb by English. Last couple of years, I have a lot of them started. You know, there's no problem. They're going to, I know they're going to be hardy. And they were grown, they were bred in Ithaca, I think, New York. But just will they get quite that big? Because Dale's giant, it fruits, and, and grafted oaks, they'll fruit the first year you graft them, man. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. It's crazy to see the first year and sometimes the second year they'll fruit even you think, oh, that's just because there's flower buds on your grafting stock or, you know, on your sign. But no, the second year there'll be even more. And like Dale, these Dale's giant, you know, they're putting acorns on the second and third year. So I get acorns on them every year, but they just don't, you know, they were getting cold and they're still not pushing out of the cap like they did. No, they don't get that size. They're probably two thirds. Yeah. And that's probably going to be the case with all of them. In zone 4B, they're just not going to get as big. So the small ones, you know, that are dime, dime to nickel sized, that are sweet, like Ashworth. And Ashworth, that's that's three. He found that one with 3B. So that's Really? Yeah. Well, that makes sense, given where he was. Yes. Well, you know, um, Potsdam, right? Whatever that town is up there. Yeah. So he found somewhere up there. And so it's hard as nails. Um, and, and Hershey and he weren't – Hershey and Ashworth were – in communication so um now that i have them both grafted here and can observe them like oh these are the same plant you know because the hershey's are no tags on there's not a plant with a tag on it 
But it would make sense, yeah. You know, once you think about it, yeah, they'd be changing, they'd be exchanging germplasm for sure. Yeah, and it is sweet. I can tell you that one, which I, I have a tag to CDS number one, which stands for cul-de-sac, first one in the cul-de-sac, and it is the deer's choice. It is literally they'll they'll go to that before persimmon. They just they you cannot concede off that thing unless you're there when they fall, because <laughs> they're gone in the morning. And the deer, I don't know if you know, this, the deer yeah. split the acorns in their mouth and spit the shell out. No, I didn't. Persimmon I've seed. never seen a deer eat an acorn. Oh, they eat these like they love these. Well, a deer love chestnut. Crazier of a chestnut. Same thing. They spit the shells out. And same thing with persimmons. At Hershey's, when the chestnut, when the persimmons have dropped insanely, there's a couple there that drop like in one week, everyone drops. The deer spit the seed out. They eat the persimmon and spit the seeds out. They don't chew them up. Because the ground is littered with like, you know, a solid quarter inch deck. <laughs> a persimmon seed is wild to see. That's yeah, that's insane. Yeah, you start you start looking at these trees and then the interaction with the different animals that are involved. It's like, wow, who knew the deer would spit shit out? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's. I mean, that's cool. Yeah, and it's good because otherwise, you know, now you've got a nice little uh, seed bank. Yeah, well, for persimmons. Yeah, <laughs> for acorns and chestnuts, all you have is uh, empty hulls, and it's it tricks you because they'll split them enough so that it's still half of this. It looks like it's still a whole seed. You pick them up like, damn. Another empty one. <laughs> yeah. Buzz, for folks that want to uh, see what you're doing, do you have a uh, social media or website, anything like that you can send them to? I have my website. It's mostly, there is a, um, a gallery there. And if you click on the photos in the gallery, it'll pop up with a text. But a lot of, I think a lot of people don't know that. So they're just scrolling through the photos and it's just, you have no idea what they are. If you click on the photo, the text will come up. It tells you what it is, and it's kind of the highlights of the things I've collected over the past four or five years. And then on my Facebook page, I, I, I'm too, I'm trying to understand how Instagram works. And frankly, it's like it's still mysterious to me. I have Facebook dialed in. I'm, I'm old, you know. Facebook's for old people, as they say. So my personal page, Buzz Fervor, it kind of keeps you up with what I'm doing. It comes with crazy stuff that you might want to see i have a perfect circle farm page because apparently you can't get any integration with instagram without a, you know that kind of a facebook page so i have that i don't mm. go i don't even go to it it's just i'm too busy with just my life growing stuff i need somebody that just wants to do social media for me like a volunteer you know just <laughs> who work for seed nuts or something at least someone who could tell me how Instagram works. I have young friends that are like flower farmers and nut farmers and their Instagram shit is spectacular. I'm like, how do they do this? What is it? What is all this? You know, how do you get all yeah. text on there and little videos and stuff like right over my head. But my, uh, my well, if you need a hand, is, I can help you with that. Yeah. yeah okay. I, I've, I've been fairly successful on social media on Instagram. So yeah, you are I, I go, I a, a little following. I go to social media. I go to Instagram. <laughs> a couple times a month just to see if there's some something magical ha will happen i do i have seen i've recently started following you i don't know if you saw that but i did go back to uh, yourself yeah you've got a lot of really cool plants people need to see them people need to be aware yeah. that they can buy them yeah it's part of this whole thing we had this whole conversation before uh last week about trying to get these stories out there so yeah. anything i can do to to highlight the work you're doing i'm happy to do so the website's a perfectcircle.farm, right? Perfectcircle.farm and social media, Buzz Fervor on um, Facebook. And it's, it's public. You can just, anyone could go there, comment, and do whatever. There's no um, – you can try to friend me, but I think I have 5,000 friends already. So it's like 
it might not work. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Well, Buzz, uh, this has been really interesting. Um, definitely going to want to follow up with you about a whole bunch of other stuff we didn't even get to talk about today. Permanent agriculture history, tree crops history. Yeah. There's there's a lot of stuff to unpack. And yeah. There's only so much time, and <laughs> only so much time we can do it at a time. Exactly. Well, if you wanted me to come back at some point, sometime and talk about, you know, the historical visits I've made, what I've seen, what I've learned from those, that kind of stuff, I'd love that. Whatever you want is fine. I'm starting to. I have more time in winter, as you know. So, if you want more time, we can work that through. Yeah, absolutely. We'll we'll set something up. Anything you want me to round up, pull things together, other pieces that would, you know, make what we said already more coherent. I think it came up pretty good. 